It's a joy to be with all of you this morning. Uh, join us as we worship through singing. You're the Word of God. You're the Word of God, the Father. From before the world began, every star and every planet has been fashioned by your hand. All creation.
Join us in singing What Can Wash.
if you would please take your Bibles and remain standing for the reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. We'll be reading this morning from John chapter 4. This is a familiar passage. We'll be picking up in the middle of this conversation that Jesus is having with the Samaritan woman at the well. So John chapter 4, we'll be starting in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And you may be seated. As we continue our time together and come before the Lord in prayer, we want to remember this morning Misael and Yolanda Morales, who are serving in Tecate, Mexico, in a children's home, and our church has supported them for a long time, and we want to remember them this morning as we pray. So pray with me. Lord, we come to you this morning and are thankful that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. God, that you have called us to come before you and that we can know the one who has created all things, who has given breath to every living creature and that you sustain all things. Yet, God, we know that we are a people who wander from you. We are a people who are rebellious. God, we are a people who, who stray from your truth and from your word, and yet you have called us to be your own, and that, God, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, the infinite great I Am, who went to the cross to die in our place and to pay our eternal penalty, God, that we know that we have life in Him and that we can live a life of joy and of peace knowing that we are right before the Maker of the universe. God, it is because of the blood of Jesus that we can come before you and that we can come here this morning and sing your praises. And so, God, we give you the glory. We give you the praise. God, we know that when it, it is when we are weak that you are strong. God, it is that you have stripped all away from us that we could have any pride in so that we could only boast in you. And so, God, would you allow our hearts to boast in you alone God, that our praises, that our worship, that our attention, that all that we would do and say would make much of Jesus this morning. God, thank you for uh, Misael and Yolanda and their desire to serve you in Tecate, their desire to uh, reach these, uh, these children for you. God, would you give them encouragement and strength, um, allow them to be sustained in their ministry, and uh, God, that we as your people here at Grace can support them. Um, would you allow that to happen in that there would be those in heaven one day who would rejoice and praise you because of the work that happened there in, in Tecate and, and through the ministry that you have empowered. And so we give you this time. God, would you turn our eyes to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.
thank you so much. Um, you promise uh, to be faithful, uh, faithful to your promises in the word, and you've promised that um, when your word goes forth, it won't return back to you void or empty or useless. Um, and we need your help um, for spiritual eyes and clarity and conviction so that your word penetrate us at the deepest level so that we can be people that worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray all these things because of Jesus and by his um, overflowing mercy and grace and kindness. It's in his name we pray. Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles, if you would please, to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 26 and a little bit more this morning. So I need to start out by telling you that um, I, I suffer from WDD. That's Worship Deficit Syndrome and uh, worship, worship deficit disorder, actually. And the reason for that is that I, I'm looking at all kinds of things and thinking about all things, uh, all kinds of things, besides worship a lot of the time, maybe most of the time. And yet God calls us to worship. God calls us to be a worshipful people. That's, as we're going to see, why he actually created us. So uh, when we come here to this place, we call this what kind of service? worship service. So I wonder sometimes how much worship really goes on in our worship service, or for that matter, the, the rest of the week. Um, so um, I kind of started, a, I did a little survey of, of one, that was me, and um, a little uh, evaluation, and well, I was kind of disappointed. Uh, the amount of service that goes on in my life is not near as much as I would like, and I guarantee you, nowhere close to where the, what the Lord would like and what he actually demands of us. Um, when we come into this place, when we rise up in the morning, do we start out by worshiping him? And what does that worship need to look like? Um, I, I struggle with that, and I suspect that pretty much all of you do also. Um, so wh why don't we worship more than we should? Um, what, what keeps us from that? There's lots of things. Maybe we just don't understand what worship's all about. Or we have this little, this narrow, stilted view of what worship is. Or we don't realize fully the depth of God's demand that we worship Him more than anything else. Maybe we don't prepare our hearts for worship when we rise up, when we walk by the way. Uh, maybe we don't think about worship when, even as we drive into church on a Sunday morning. Everything else, when we walk in, we think we're going to turn some kind of switch and automatically we're going to be starting to worship. Um, Maybe we haven't even purposed in our hearts that that's what we want to do. Uh, maybe we haven't made worship a pattern of our life that uh, is woven into the warp and woof of, of who we really are. Um, maybe sin has entangled us. Maybe sin has entangled you. And, and um, the spirit that actually leads us into worship is quenched in our lives. And for sure, we're easily distracted, as I started to say. We're, we, we, we hardly think about worship most of the time, though God calls us to worship. We don't, again, focus on worship. We, we think that maybe when we come to church, would we just worship when we, when we sing? And we easily become bored, bored with church and bored with the idea of worship. But God says it's a serious issue. Uh, A.W. Tozer put it this way, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. 
So God's word tells us that worship is a serious business. And the reason for that is it's why God actually created us in the first place. As Jesus told the Pharisees, if his followers didn't worship him, that the rocks would cry out. God created everything. His entire creation was to reflect his glory, was to worship him. And we need to understand that God's creation isn't some kind of divine artistic expression as many people think, but rather we are the most profound expression of the infinite creative glory of God. And we're created for the sole purpose of magnifying God's inexpressible, majestic glory. So when sin entered into the world, God's perfect world, the most holy thing that God created was corrupted. The very ones that he created perfectly to perfectly worship him. Yet we need to keep in mind that man is still created in God's image. Uh, everyone still worships something. We can't help it. We find ourselves worshiping things, people, money, cars. Sometimes we worship our kids. We might worship power or recognition. We might even worship ourselves. I'd rather be me instead of the most holy God. But God not only made us to worship, he commands us to worship. Worship him and him alone. You know, God is a jealous God. The first commandment tells us that. Uh, first and second commandments tell us that in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. It's pretty clear. And his second commandment takes it further. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's word contains many names for um, God that describe his glory and majesty. Jehovah Jireh. Uh, Adonai. We, we know these names, Elohim. In Exodus 34, though, a few more chapters in Exodus, we find in verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is jealous for his worship, and anything that we worship besides God diminishes God and diminishes his glory. Isaiah 42, 8 tells us, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God demands our worship. Anything less than that is a sin before him. And worshiping other things besides our most holy God has eternal consequences. God gave us a lot of illustrations to make that really, really clear. In Leviticus chapter 10, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. In chapter 10, it starts out by saying, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put, it, and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came down from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron, who just lost his two sons, it says, and Aaron held his peace. 
He knew exactly that his sons got what they deserved. And in Exodus 32, uh, the Israelites had uh, reduced God to a molten calf while Moses was meeting God on the mountain. And as a result, the passage tells us that God destroyed 3,000 of them. God wants us to know that he takes our worship seriously. When we worship that which is not his holy name, there are consequences. Thank God he doesn't strike us dead today, usually. But there are consequences in our lives, consequences for eternity. So I think we need to ask, start out by asking, how, how do we actually worship the Lord? So in this passage that we're looking at in John 4, specifically 19 to 26, Jesus gives us the clearest and most succinct requirement for true, true worship. I think that we find in all the word. So I want to overview the context here for a minute. So G- Jesus is on his way to Galilee, and he stops at Jacob's well in Samaria while his disciples go into town. So now he's alone, and a woman comes to get water, and Jesus uh, asks her for a drink. And she was totally shocked. Wait a minute. Uh, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. They hate Samaritans. And especially Jews don't talk to women. And you're asking me for a drink? And Jesus says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, a drink of living water. Everyone who drinks this water will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring welling up to eternal life. Now this really starts to get the Samaritan woman's attention. She says, sir, give me this water that I don't have to come to this well anymore. So she didn't exactly get it right, did she? She thought, oh, I won't have to come to the well. Jesus will just give me living water. And um, so now um, in the next few verses, starting verse 16, Jesus suddenly tells her, call your husband. Tell your husband to come here. And she responds, "Mm, uh, I have no husband. And, and Jesus answered her, well, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. So this seems like rather abrupt change. Living water, bring your husband. But what Jesus was really doing, he wasn't changing the subject. He was focusing on the subject. If she wanted to worship, she must acknowledge and repent of her sin and her sinful life. Recognition of sin is absolutely necessary for repentance from sin. And Jesus was calling to her attention her sinful state. He's saying, you want living water? You want eternal life? You want to worship? Acknowledge your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it. Only then can you worship. We need to understand that refusal to acknowledge and confess our sins and repent of our sins is exactly the opposite of worship. It's false worship. We cling to our sin and then turn around and say, I'm going to worship God. It's impossible the ultimate barrier to worshiping God. That's why 1 John tells us, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And keep in mind, John is writing this to believers. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. Worship is impossible. True worship starts with true repentance. We can't hang on to sin and say we worship. Sin pollutes worship. That's why David prayed, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 
for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is true repentance. That's what God calls us. Repent before him before we try to worship him. Not bring our baggage before him and say that we're worshiping. So in that moment, when Jesus exposes the Samaritan woman's sin, she realizes she's not talking to an ordinary man. Verse 19, she says, I perceive you're a prophet. She's now fully drawn into the conversation. Actually, this is a revelation. God is revealing to her that she is talking to more than a prophet. Maybe she was talking to someone worthy of worship. So she says, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So now, in just five sentences, Jesus reveals that, a wor- that worship isn't about the place that we worship. It's about the person to be worshiped, the promised Messiah. And he's completely rocking her world when he says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, you need to receive what I'm about to tell you. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The, temp- the Samaritan temple, he's reminding her, was destroyed over 100 years ago. And the Jewish temple here in Jerusalem will soon be destroyed. And we know it was in 70 AD. And, and it won't matter where you worship. But he wasn't talking about the destruction of, of the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his own sacrifice upon the cross. When he dies upon the cross and redeems us from our sins and cleanses us, that we will be able to come before his throne and worship him. And he's saying, what matters to you to you is the con- when you worship is the condition of your heart condition of the heart so by now the woman is most likely beginning to think you know uh, yeah I'm a, I'm a sinner I, and, and you knew that I had five husband, husbands and you knew that I'm living with a man who is not my husband right now and yet you offered me this, this living water and you're telling me that I can worship God anywhere I think she was quickly coming to the realization that she didn't need a place to worship. She needed forgiveness so that she could worship. She was beginning to understand that she needed a Savior. She needed the Messiah. And the living water that he offered was cleansing water leading to eternal life. It's transforming. Cleansing power would enable her to actually worship the only one worthy of worship. She was beginning to think, I think, that maybe it doesn't matter that um, I'm a Samaritan. Maybe it doesn't matter that I'm a woman. And I'm beginning to understand it doesn't matter where I worship. What mattered was that she could truly worship and that she wanted to more than anything else to worship. But she wasn't quite there yet. Verse 22 says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, Jesus wasn't putting down the Samaritans and lifting up the Jews particularly. He was merely trying to tell her that the message of the gospel comes through the word of God. And the Jews believe the word of God, at least many of them do. He's saying basically, you Samaritans only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, which was the way it was, and they rejected the other 34. And he's saying, you've missed the most important part. The Messiah will come from God's chosen people. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is about ready to reveal to her then 
that he is the Messiah. But first, he needs to tell her what true worship is really all about. Look at verse 30, uh, 23. It says, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So before we go any further, um, we need to make sure we understand a few things about what God's word tells us about worship. I was telling uh, Matthew uh, as I was preparing, you know, I think this is about a 16-week uh, study on worship. But Pastor Mike only gave me one week, so I'm going to give you the short version today. Uh, um, a few things. One, uh, the original Greek word for worship means to prostrate oneself uh, in homage, to bow down, to reverence, to adore. And it's used, this word in particular is used only in reference to God and to Jesus. So in short, worship is to humble ourselves before God and to magnify the manifold majesties of God. We humble ourselves, we magnify him. It's praising God, the one who is the infinite, indescribable, glorious one. It's to magnify his mercies, his grace, his love, his purity, his perfection, his eternality, his infinite power, his sacrificial love of giving his son, his only son, to die on the cross for our sins. To worship God is to worship his holy name, his radiant glory. The one whom the psalmist said is robed in majesty. Worshiping God is desiring and admiring all that God is, magnifying more and more of God, the Father, more and more of his indwelling spirit, and more and more of Jesus. Worship is to make more of God and less of ourselves. Actually, it's to make all of God and none of us. Worship is to proclaim all that he is and all that, that we can understand him to be, that God's word reveals him to be. Worship is to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ, for he and he alone is worthy of worship. Psalm 95. Psalm 95 tells us, you're welcome to turn. But Psalm 95, O come, let us sing before the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great and great above all gods. In his hand are depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we come before the Lord, and we worship him, and we worship him in many ways. He calls us to worship him with all that we have in our singing. You know, but for many of us, first thing we think about is singing, joyful noises and songs of praise. It's the first thing in, this, in Psalm 95 that we just read about. Music is, in itself, though, it's not, what, it's not worship. It's a powerful, powerful means that God gave us to magnify his majesties. So when we sing, we sing to the Lord. We sing his word, and we praise him for that. We don't come to sing to be entertained or to get this emotional high. Singing, when it points not to the musicians, 
but to the author of all divine music is true worship. And when we confine worship to music, we actually diminish what God calls us and how God calls us to worship. Yes, worship is giving thanks. Thanks for his boundless mercy. It's seeking God's face. You know, I, I think of Moses. Remember in, in uh, Exodus 33, Moses meets God in the tent of meeting face to face. And as he was meeting God face to face, uh, some form of God's glory appeared to him. Uh, we know later on that he could not see all of God's glory or he would die, but God revealed himself as a friend to a friend to Moses. And it's interesting, the people of Israel, they, in, they would come out of their tents. Remember, they're in the wilderness, they're living in tents. They would come out of their tents and they would stand at the door of their tents and seeing God with Moshe, Moses in that tent, it must have been this radiant glory emanating, it says that they worshiped in the doors of their tent. And so later on, when Moses is with God on the mountain, he tells the Lord, God, Lord, show me your mercy. I want to see more of your mercy. I want to see more and more of you. Because worshiping is desiring to see God. It's also remembering God's faithfulness, that his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And worshiping God is also hearing God's word. I think in Nehemiah 8, Pastor Mike mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, the people of Israel, the, uh, the, the remnant that was, had come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, uh, Ezra gets up and he starts reading God's word that they hadn't heard for 70 years. And in the hearing of God's word, they bowed their head. They raised their hands. They bowed their heads. They fell on their knees. They fell on their face when they heard the word of God spoken. The hearing of God's word should compel us to worship God. Worship God also is ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name. In 1 Chronicles 16, I'm going to ask you to turn there. 1 Chronicles 16, I'm going to read quite a bit of this. Because if you get nothing else out of this sermon today, get this. It's God's word. 1 Chronicles 16. It says, begin, I'm just going to begin in verse 8. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Verse 11 now, 1 Chronicles 16. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he has uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Now jump down to verse 23. It says again, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared among all, above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Now these next verses, beginning in verse 28, are actually repeated almost word for word in Psalm 96. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. 
Yes, the word is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then, the, then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Picture here is worship is giving to the Lord that which he has revealed to us, ascribing to him all of his glorious majesty. It's coming before the Lord. God created the entire creation to worship him. The seas, the trees, rocks, the fields. God created his entire worship, his entire creation, that it might bring him glory, that we might worship him. So back to Back to John chapter 4, looking at verse 23. Uh, beginning in verse 23, Jesus uh, gives five truths about true worship that I want to leave with you today. Actually, Jesus wants to leave them with us. Number one, true worship is offered to all. Verse 23 starts out by saying, The hour is coming and is now here. What hour? The hour uh, when true worshipers can worship him. Jesus is announcing the most powerful, dramatic, and consequential moment in history. The hour is coming. The hour is now here when the promised Messiah has come. And in very short time, he, Jesus, will transform how worship can actually happen. Worship is no longer confined to the temple. There will be no more priests who offer sacrifice on our behalf. Our behalf. Jesus will be that eternal sacrifice. Jesus will be our intermediary who bridges the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. You can worship the Lord as he intended from the beginning, cleansed from sin, hearts purified by the blood of Christ to worship with all that is in us. We no longer have to worship with a, a real fear of coming into the presence of the most holy God. We can come boldly to him. Uh, Hebrews 4 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help and help in time of need. Everyone who believes in Jesus, that he is truly the promised Messiah, he's telling us the time has come and you can truly worship him. The second thing we want to see is that only true worshipers can worship the Father. It seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? True worshipers. We should dig a little deeper who are those true worshipers? The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father. So who exactly then are those true worshipers? Jesus isn't saying that true worshipers are some special class of the redeemed and you have to uh, get your cert certificate in worship. He is saying anyone who truly repents and believes in him, who trusts in him as Lord and Savior, is a worshiper. If we're not a worshiper, we're not a follower of Jesus. If we're truly saved, we will worship the Father. So true worship is really a sign of a true believer. When Paul told the uh, <clears throat> Corinthians to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, I think he meant at least in part this. Um, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that this about yourself, that Jesus is Christ in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 2 Corinthians 13. So again, one test, maybe the test, is to ask ourselves, do I truly, do I truly worship God? Or am I just a, just a student? I just 
taken some kind of spiritual test. Um, if, if he, that is the Lord, is first place in our lives, um, do I worship him? If Christ is in us, do I worship him? Do we choose, above, do we choose him above all other things? Is pleasing the Lord the most important thing in our lives? Am I willing to sacrifice all else to worship him, to honor him, to glorify him? I think in, in Daniel 3, we find the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And um, they were called, were, they were commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to, to worship his God and his golden image of a God. And um, so in verse 13 of Daniel 3, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. If you do not worship my gods, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So in verse 16, it tells us, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We're not going to do that. If you want to throw us into the fire, throw us into the fire, and that's exactly what they did. And that fire was so hot that uh, they had stoked it up so much that the, that the guards who threw them in were, were burned themselves. Then the king says, wait a minute. Who is that I see walking around in the fire? Is it not Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo? And is there not a fourth person there? And most uh, commentators believe, as you're thinking right now, maybe that's the Lord Jesus himself standing with them in the fire question for us is, are we willing to sacrifice everything? Are we willing to sacrifice anything to worship him? You know, there are people all over the world today who are sacrificing everything to worship Jesus. And someday, I believe, that's going to be the case right here in this country. Joshua 24, 15, Joshua challenges his fellow Israelites. He says, choose you this day whom you will worship whom you will serve. In the same way, Jesus is challenging this woman at the well. Choose you this day whom you will worship. You want to be a true believer? You want to worship the Lord? Now he's going to say, you need to worship me. So true worship is offered to all, all who would believe in him. But only true worshipers can worship the Father. And now he tells us, true worshipers worship in spirit. True worshipers worship in spirit. Again, verse 23. The hour is coming and it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. We're to worship God from the very depths of our souls. We're to worship God in our innermost being. Our spirit is, is, is the part of us that, that actually lives forever. Our spirit is going to someday uh, be in his presence. It's who we really are. Yes, our bodies will re re be redeemed. We're going to get new bodies, but our spirit lives forever. It lives forever unto eternal salvation or lives forever unto eternal damnation. But we know this, that God wants us to worship our worship to flow from the very depths of who we are, the heart of who we are. 
And God is spirit, and he wants our spirit to come from our spirit. He reminds us that we're made in his image. We're, we are the only creation of God endowed with a spirit. You know, your, your dog might be spirited, but he sure doesn't have a spirit. Only people have spirits. God made us to worship him. Our spirit is the wellspring of our souls. Psalm 4.23 says, keep your, heart, keep your heart with all vigilance, from, for from it flow the springs of life, the springs of who we are. Our spirit is who uh, we are once all the other outer accoutrements of our lives are stripped away. Later, Jesus uh, identifies the greatest commandment He's, um, we find it, well, he repeats it, and then we find it originally in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We are to love the Lord our God with everything that is in us, the depths of our spirit. We worship the God in spirit. Psalm 103, one, King David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. The only way we can do that is to present our bodies holy before him, to present our lives holy before him. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. This is at the core of what Jesus is teaching about worship. So he repeats it again. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we worship God in our spirits because God is a spirit. He's not a spirit. He is spirit in his very essence. God's not confined confined to a body. Because we're made in God's image, our worship is not confined to our bodies. God calls us to worship him as he originally intended, spirit to spirit, Uh, small s, corrupt and redeemed, to capital S, perfect, holy, and eternal. So although sin has indeed corrupted everything in this world, all who trust in Christ are cleansed from all unrighteousness. In our inner being, our spirit is cleansed. We are new creations in him, and God, who is spirit, wants us to worship him with our cleansed and pure and undefiled heart. As one commentator put it, uh, where the spirit is not engaged, There is no worship at all. I want to comment. We read in uh, Chronicles 16, 1 Chronicles 16, that that we're we're to fear the Lord. What what does that mean? Um, Let me give you this. Deuteronomy 10 in, in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And as we read in 1 Chronicles 16, he is to be feared above all the gods. Wait a minute, we just read that we could come boldly before the throne, did we not? That we could come with confidence, but we're still to fear the Lord. We're to fear the reality of his judgment. We're to to come before him recognizing that we were one step away from the abyss And God in his grace grabbed us by the collar and pulled us back. He opened our blind eyes and our deaf ears that we might see and hear the glory of the gospel of Christ. That we might come to him. And we we 
realize that. We fear him. We fear what could have happened in our lives. And those that are apart from Christ should fear him for that very reason. So fear, in this sense, it's, it's an Isaiah 6 kind of recognition of the awesome majesty of, and holiness of God seated on his, his throne. It's a sober recognition that he has snatched us away from what sin requires and what we truly deserve, the wrath of God. It's the kind of fear, I think, when we suddenly face death but are somehow rescued. Has that ever happened to you? You came close to death and somehow, by God's grace, you were rescued and the last moment, you were saved. It's happened to me more times than I'm going to admit right now. And probably for the wrong reasons. I mean, why I got in that place in the first place. But uh, I, in particular, I was thinking about... Um, Cindy and I went on a long-awaited 50th anniversary trip last May. And uh, we brought our big motorcycle with us. And we, we were riding around uh, Hilton Head, North Carolina. It was a really fun place to ride. And, and having a great time until this lady pulled out in front of us. Could have been a guy, but it was, in this case it was a lady. And pulled out in front of us, and uh, I'm slamming on the brakes on this bike. And it's, you know, the thing weighs like, with both of us on, over 1,000 pounds. I'm, I'm hitting the brakes, and the back tire locks up, and it starts skidding sideways. And at the last moment, she, this lady looks up, and she, she, she hits her brakes, and I was able to swerve around. And we were okay. God saved us. Hallelujah. We're here. By the way, we sold that bike when we got home. But <laughs> you know what happened? You know what happened in that moment? My legs turned to jelly. You ever been there? We were so scared in a moment, your legs turned to jelly. That's exactly what happened. I didn't stop the bike to, to just get my breath because I knew that if I did, I couldn't hold it up. This is exactly what happens when we come before Jesus, when we come face to face with the most holy God, that our legs should turn to jelly. That, I think this gave me a whole new perspective. Now, I think I understand why when people come face to face with the most holy God, they have no choice but to worship him and to fall down to worship him. Why? Because their legs turn to jelly. That's why God tells us that uh, we are to fix our eyes on him, uh, that um, we are to worship him in holiness and purity. That's why God tells us we're to long to be in his presence. That's why Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3, if when you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory and you will, I'm adding this, and you will worship him. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's why the hymn writer wrote, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light you can say it of his glory and grace so why does the bible emphasize this so much because that's exactly how we're transformed from glory to glory into his image that's how we're transformed to be like him that's why my, one of my very favorite verses in all the bible is 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all with unveiled faith 
face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're being transformed from glory to glory. We're transformed from glory when we come into his presence with true worship. We're transformed from glory to glory when we immerse ourselves in his word and when we rejoice in his word and we glorify in his word and we magnify him for what he has revealed to us in his word, who he is. And we glory in his name and we glory in his salvation in the Lord Jesus. And we become more and more like him. You know, we, we tend to become more of what we worship, do we not? And who we worship. We see that in our kids. One day they come home, our little five-year-old, and he's a, he, he's, he, he's, he, he thinks he's Superman. And the next day he thinks he's uh, uh, Spider-Man or whatever. You know, he, who he worships that day is who he begins to act like. You know, not long ago I was, I was hearing a, a mom uh, talking, in, in, talking and, and I turned around and realized, wait a minute, uh, that's not her. It's her daughter. But she sounded just like her mom. She sounded in her tone, in her inflections, her speech, uh, her speech patterns, uh, even her body language. And what was really notable about this is I knew that that young girl who was talking just like her mom was adopted. This wasn't some genetic thing. She'd been in the presence of her mom, and she wanted to be like her mom. And she didn't even realize it. She sounded just like her mom. I want to sound just like Jesus, not without authority, but I want to be like Jesus. Come into his presence and being with him makes us more like Jesus. True worship is offered to all. True worshipers can worship, only true worshipers can worship the Father. True worshipers worship in spirit. And as Jesus tells us, true worshipers worship in truth. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, Jesus said. True worship is grounded in truth revealed in God's revelation, in God's word. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 51.6 tells us, Behold, you delight in the truth, in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in your secret heart. You delight in truth in the inward being, in our heart of hearts, in the depths of our souls. So this leads us straight to Jesus, does it not? Because Jesus is the one who told us in John 14, 6, we all know it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And he reveals himself in his word. Um, R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, worship, the worship to which we are called in our renewed state is far too important to be left to personal preferences, to whims, or to marketing strategies. It's the pleasing of God that is at the heart of worship. Therefore, our worship must be informed at every point by the word of God. We seek God's own instructions for worship that is pleasing to him. True worship, true worshipers worship in truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of his word. That's why our songs, by the way, are always grounded in this church, in the Word of God. They're not designed to make us feel better or to draw out some kind of emotion. We sing songs that point us to Jesus, do we not? We, we sing songs that point us to God, not to the people who are leading us. And our Heavenly Father, the fifth thing I want to share with you is our Heavenly Father 
is seeking true worshipers. Verse 23, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Father is seeking such people to worship him. I want to be one of those such peoples. How about you? The Lord is seeking lifelong worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth, who worship him with a, with a whole heart, everything that is within us. In 1 Chronicles 28, King David is about ready to die, and he's handing off the kingship, as it were, to his son Solomon, and he gives him the charge. 1 Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 9, he says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, and if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. The Lord is seeking us even as we seek him. Second Chronicles 16 again. Second uh, Chronicles 16, not First Chronicles. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. The Lord is seeking true worshipers whose hearts are blameless before him. That's why Jesus invites us to come to him. That's why he said in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The worship is not a burden. Worship flows from hearts that are wholly his. The wellspring of our heart, it, it overflows and we worship him. It's not something that we kind of like gin up. Worship comes from hearts that we give to him and he gives us hearts that are wholly his. And from the wellspring of our hearts, we worship him. I love it when we sing, come you weary heart now to Jesus. Come you anxious soul and see. There is perfect love and comfort for your tears. Rest here in his wondrous peace. If we do that, we can worship him. So what about the Samaritan woman? She reveals her deeper knowledge of Scripture than she is really let on. Um, so she couldn't hold back after Jesus' dissertation of, on true worshipers. As she says in verse 25, uh, it says in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So again, the Samaritans believed that there would be a Messiah. And so she knew that, that if Christ would come, the one who is worthy of worship and the one who can actually make her worthy of worship, to make her a true worshiper. So she's saying, it seems, she's ready to worship. Just, uh, just show me the Messiah. And Jesus then utters these amazing, powerful words to her. He reveals to her who he is and who she's speaking to. He says in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, the original Greek here doesn't have the he in it. Uh, it can actually be translated, uh, I who speak to you am. And of course, that immediately tells her that, he is, that he is, he's proclaiming that, no, I am God. Uh, just as he said in John 8, 58, uh, truly I say to you before, before Abraham was, I am name for God. God reveals it to us. He says, I am the I am. Jesus is telling her, I am the Messiah. So then, what, what, what happened to this Samaritan woman? 
Um, what we're not told explicitly kind of leaves us wondering. Um, but we do know that she, she ran to the nearest village after this encounter. And she, and she said, I imagine she shouted, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I'm thinking, she's thinking, it's a rhetorical question, this is the Christ. Later in verse 29 we're told, um, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And um, I, hope that, uh, I hope that that's exactly what she did, that she repented, that she trusted in Jesus. And I hope to someday see her in heaven. But we need to be reminded that worship is a battle. It's a spiritual battle that we cannot win on our own. I think we understand that. Um, the attractive things of this world will inexorably pull us away from worship. You know, I don't know about you, but I, my mind wanders really easily. I, I really do have ADD. I'm just like, it's ridiculous. You know, I can be concentrated as hard as I can, and next thing I know I'm thinking about cars. <laughs> I just, I mean, other things. It just jump into my mind. It's a battle. God, help me to bring every thought captive before you. Lord, I need you to focus my mind. And I've found, and this is me, that um, when I find myself concentrating the most with the least things that are interfering in my brain is when I spend time studying God's Word. I close the door to my study, and I'm immersed in God's Word. It's my attention. I hope that works for you. It will. We ask God to do that for us. Um, so... It's a battle. Why is it a battle? Well, 1 John 2 tells us, uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what is the will of God? That we worship his holy name. That's the will of God. That's why he created us. Allow the things of this world, the bright, shiny things of this world to capture our attention, to pull us away. We can't worship him. We cling to sin that we just refuse to confess. We can't worship him. We love anything besides him. We, defy, we defiled his holy name. God calls us to worship so while the world is constantly in our face, uh, we can avoid it. We can seek him. The only way that we can truly worship God is when we truly seek him, when we spend time in his presence, when we immerse ourselves in his word, when we seek his face, when we pray, when we sing together, when we worship him in holy, and we worship him in his holy array. God calls us to worship. He created us to worship. You know, one of my very favorite songs is all about worship, and my kids knew it, and uh, now just almost 21 years ago, my daughter, who was taking a calligraphy class, gave me um, a, this beautiful parchment calligraphy of my favorite worship song, and what do you think the name of that is? A Worship the King. And it sets uh, on my dresser in a little stand, and every morning as I'm dressing, I look at this, and many, many times I'll just stop and I'll read these words. 
Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His wonderful love. Our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days, pavilion in splendor and girded with praise. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. That is the God that we worship, is it not? So worship the King, all glorious above. He calls us to worship Him. God, give us a worshipful heart. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the reality that we can that we can worship your holy name that we can come before you as a people cleansed by the blood of the lamb made pure before you and worship you from the depths of our souls that we can worship you in spirit and who we really are lord may our worship before you be a sweet smelling savor before your throne we ask in jesus name amen would you stand and join as we close by singing
Um, there's uh, our December devotional uh, in the back. Be sure to pick one up, The True Messiah. And then don't forget, um, Christmas Eve, Saturday evening, uh, we'll be having a service here starting at 4 o'clock Christmas Eve service. So plan on that with your family if you would. Let me leave you with this from Revelation chapter 4, verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who seated who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Lord, thank you for our time. Bless, we pray, our worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor,